you're going to a gathering. And so you drive your car to some house of a person who's throwing a party or uh, a get-together. You put on your mask, you get out of the car, you walk up to the porch, you ring the doorbell, and you take a deep breath. And someone opens the door, takes your coat, and invites you in, and introduces you around and says, go on out to the patio. Maybe it's a networking gathering. Maybe it's a new, you're new to the area, new to the neighborhood, and people are inviting you over to get to know you better. Maybe it's a birthday party for your child, and you don't know many of the parents, so you're there uh, along with your child. But for whatever reason, you look around, and you know nobody. So you know that you're going to get some questions, to get to know you questions. And just as you're putting that first nacho in your mouth from the, from the plate that you gathered, someone comes up beside you and asks that age-old question. So what do you do? Where do you work? What line of business are you in? All those questions that get you started, um, and you're off. You're off talking about what you do during your 9 to 5 work day. This work that we do is, is part of our identity, isn't it? It's part of uh, what identifies us. What we do, where we do it, says a whole lot about who we are and how we do it. How we do this work says a whole lot about who we are. And it says a whole lot about who we follow, too. Recently, a group of about 15 people gathered online on Sunday mornings just to talk about work and faith. We talked about faith, work, and faith working through love. And in that time together, we talked about what kind of work we do, why we work at what we do, and where we do it. We talked about how our faith helps us, and we talked about how our faith even hinders us sometimes, how it challenges us in the work that we do. So today I thought I'd share some of those lessons and thoughts and reflections that we had in that class. And I'm going to start by talking to you about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of those books in the Bible that we don't hear a whole lot about, but it's one of my favorites. I think it's one of Pastor Scott's too. It's unfortunate too because it sits right in the middle of all of what are known as the wisdom books. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job. The, wisdom's bo the wisdom books are a little different than the earlier books, the Genesis, Exodus, and, and the prophets and things. Instead of the focus on God as creator or God as judge or God as, uh, relation in relationship with Israel, these books speak to us by assuming that God is already here and what wisdom we can garner from that, how we can live our lives with the wisdom that God is above all and that this activity of God is open to everyone, everyone out there, to determine for ourselves how God is at work in our lives. So there's not a lot of stories that go on in Ecclesiastes, but a lot of lessons, a lot of wisdom lessons. It's not a coincidence that these books are called wisdom literature. Psalms start with poems, the literature of poetry that has a purpose for our lives. What is it that we do in, in poetry that we hear? We hear about lament and praise and joy and fear and all those emotions that we have. And in Proverbs, they're either short couplets, couplets or longer contrasting type stories that compare and contrast lady wisdom with lady folly. You're either wise or you're foolish. 
Proverbs is all about giving us options between the wise and the foolish and then telling us what the consequences are if we choose either one. And then there's Job, the narrative about a man who loses everything and how his faith sustains him in that. There's a lesson of wisdom in the story of Job. So what about Ecclesiastes? What does it bring to the table and what does it have to do with work? Well, Ecclesiastes is addressed to those individuals, those persons who mistakenly believe that their possessions and their accumulation and how they accumulate those possessions through work, the accumulation of that stuff will bring lifelong and eternal satisfaction. Kohelet is the one who wrote Ecclesiastes. Kohelet is like a preacher. It's a teacher of wisdom. Kohelet is the person who's sharing the lessons in Ecclesiastes. Think back to that gathering when, when we took the bite of nacho and we're going and we're talking to everyone now. We feel a little more comfortable and you look over on the patio and you see an older figure sitting in a rocking chair with a group of people around them and telling these lessons and these old stories. There's people standing around listening to what this person has to say about the meaning of life. Seriously, the meaning of life. Imagine then that you sit there for an hour at the feet of this person listening to all of the stories and you walk away with this from Ecclesiastes as the meaning of life. It is what it is. Seriously, no kidding. It is what it is. When I have the opportunity to explain the the two-minute elevator of Ecclesiastes, I say it's simple. It is what it is. Twelve chapters of that. Chapter 1 even starts with the subtitle, Everything is Meaningless. Now, I'm not sure how the editors of Kohelet's uh, book got got this good impression that they should start start chapter 1 with everything is meaningless. So I'm going to assume, and I'm going to ask you all to assume as well, that, uh, that there's more to it that everything is not meaningless, but we have to dig a little bit. So in general, Ecclesiastes shares lessons to the wise person who understands a few things. That we are not God, that we are fallible humans. That life and death and everything in between that, that that life is reality that we all must face and everything about life we all must face that there's order to the world, and that order was created by God, that there's value in the realities of life that we have, that God is here with us in those realities, and so we are not meant to disengage, we're not meant to make everything meaningless, but to be diligent in seeking for a meaningful life, one that is proactive and balanced and accepting that significant relationships with God and with each other, are a part of that life. Kohelis says that all is in vain, but we must continue on with each other. I kind of like Kohelis. He asks, answers questions with questions. He doesn't give an outright answer, but throughout the whole narrative, he invites us to consider the answer for ourselves. It's like a book of discussion questions and reflection questions that we're invited to consider. And Koheleth tells us exactly how we can find the answer and where. We find it in the revelation of wisdom. We find it in the revelation of God. Not in naivety, not in vain. 
in the revelation. Our work continues with God working through us. So let's take a look and connect today's reading with work. First, there's an observation here that people work hard, verse 4. People work hard and become good at what they do. But why? Ecclesiastes suggests that it's often out of competition, and that makes us envious, that, that this competition doesn't really bring much meaning to our lives or to the lives of others. I'm sure you know someone, I've been one myself, or maybe you are, uh, someone who is striving for that next title, that it's so important, for that next promotion, for that next advancement, that next recognition. Or maybe works and works and works, losing sight of the fact that there are relationships and lives that are being impacted by that. Your family life, your family relationships, others who need help, they're all impacted by, by that work. Koheleth shares that better this than that when he states that better is resting with one handful than working hard for two fistfuls and chasing the wind. Chasing the wind says it's pointless. You chase the wind and what do you have? It's chasing what doesn't last. And then he addresses in verses 7 and 8, he asks that question, why am I even doing this? Why am I even working so hard? You ever ask yourself that question? I do. What am I doing this for? Working hard and depriving ourselves of that enjoyment and relationships and life with God. Pointless and terrible obsession is what Koheleth says. And then finally, we move to verse 9 through 12, where Koheleth reminds us that rather than working alone, all of our work is better off when we work together. And he mentions a few specific lessons here that when we work together with at least two persons, one is there to pick up the other one when they fall. With, with at least two persons, there's warmth, there's comfort, there's encouragement. And then the last verse we heard, a three-ply cord doesn't easily snap. You may have heard the different translation that a cord of three is not easily broken. The point here is that relationships are complicated. They're twisted up sometimes, and they're a cord that, that moves away. But when you spend time with relationships, they don't snap. They don't move. They don't break. That relationships are essential. Our relationship with God our relationship with each other. We're in fact designed for community and there are physical benefits to relationships. So we hear and read what Koheleth says to us. Don't work too hard. Don't store up treasure. Keep your relationships sacred. But to what end? So I'm asking what exactly is the point of work? While I was at Perkins, I took this fascinating course on theology and economics. And while I was introduced to that semester, I was introduced to the writings of Darby Ray, who is a professor of religious studies at Millsaps College in Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi. Dr. Ray is also the director of the college's Faith and Work Institute. And that class, along with another one about family systems and family theology, had me reading a whole lot about work and about lack of work and how it affects us as individuals 
how it affects our families, how it affects our communities. And one thing that was especially interesting to me, we talked about it in our online class as well, was that seeing work as what Wesley might call a means of grace. You saw Cindy be baptized as a sacrament um, as she received the grace of, of Christ into her life. And there are other means of grace that we have, not sacraments, but means of grace. There's prayer, there's, there's um, all, all kinds of uh, Bible studies and, and visiting with people. So the question comes, can work be a means of grace? When I talk about that, I'm referring to the means by which Christ is revealed to us, to us and to others, how we see God in the everyday. Is God present with us in our work and how? Or is our work meaningless, that it doesn't have anything whatsoever to do with our faith, and so we're really just chasing wind? It's a natural question to ask. So what's the point of work? Darby Ray answers that question with, three possible answers, and I want to share them with you today. Each have a way that we can connect faith with work in this. She wrote in a book called Working, great book, that it's got some real thought-provoking questions that I want to share with you, but I want to remind you something that I've shared with you before, uh, either in a class or online on Facebook or even in a sermon or two that I've shared, that God's economy is an economy of grace. It's not one of transactions, I give, you give back, you do this, I'll do that. God's economy is an economy of grace. We don't earn our way to God's grace. God is, God's grace is given not only freely, but abundantly. And so this economy of grace is so different from what the world sees as economy. It's not measured in dollars and cents and productivity that we calculate and measure the products that we buy and sell with the intention to maximize value. That's not God's economy. So let's look at what we mean by God's economy and what the point of work is. The first point of work that I want to share with you is that we work for sustenance. We work to provide for ourselves, for our families, for the community. And the Apostle Paul is clear when he says in 2 Thessalonians, you don't work, you don't eat. He says a little more lengthy than that because that's what Paul does, but that's basically what he says. You don't work, you don't eat. Sounds a little harsh to me, but it's spoken to those who have the ability to work but choose not to. So it tells us that we are compelled, that there's something in us that wants to work. But Koheleth goes a little farther. Ecclesiastes goes a little farther. Not only do you not eat if you don't work, but if all you do is work, there's no time to enjoy the fruits of your work. There's no time for relationship. Work creates livelihood. And so we can view it as something that's needed, even required for human existence, for human flourishing. But even with that, Darby Ray says that work is a public good, not a private one. We don't just work for ourselves. What that means is that if we truly believe that sustenance is a fundamental aim of human work, then we'll also work to help everyone else become employed and to use the skills and the gifts that they've been given. It also means that work and labor must be recognized as valuable. 
they must be recognized as value. And to that I mean that our love for each other requires pay for human living. Pay for humane living. You might hear this spoken of sometimes as a living wage. When we talk about work as sustenance, the grace in that comes from a living wage and the ability to provide for your family um, in, in a decent way. In Dallas County, for two adult, one, cha one child family, that means $24.39 an hour for one person working. Almost $14 for two people working. And you know that there are many who are working below that, who are striving for a humane level of living. What does that say about our role as neighbors? That some families are now living below a wage that allows for humane living. What does that say about what work has to do to provide sustenance? Does our faith tell us that we are to advocate for a better wage? Does our faith tell us that we are to fight for uh, humanity and for dignity for each person to have humane living? But moving on, there's another reason for uh, work for another goal, another aim of work in God's economy. And I'm, I'm going to call this what Darby Ray calls it, selfhood. Selfhood means that our work affirms who we are. It affirms our personal identity. Work gives our lives purpose and stability. It gives us a form of identity. And work is a form of self-expression, of who we are, of, of what we're created to be. And God models this work for us in creation. God saw what we needed, created it for a purpose for this whole world, and then rested. As humans made in the image of God, our work calls us to reflect our spiritual gifts and our talents. Our work is there to help us claim our God-given identity. Isn't it great that by embracing that identity, by affirming and using our spiritual gifts, that work becomes life, life abundant and flourishing. This reason, this, this selfhood reason for work gives us a purpose and a means for self-expression with imagination and creativity. Our work is an expression of ourselves as children of God made in God's image. What does that say about our role as neighbors? That some of our neighbors, especially in this pandemic, have been deprived of something that brings dignity and identity to ourselves. How can we encourage those who are unemployed, the musicians who are having trouble finding venues where they can sing, the airline industry workers who are being furloughed, furloughed, furloughed after decades of service to one company. Barbara Taylor Bradford has stopped asking individuals what they do or where they work. Instead, she asks this that has everything to do about selfhood. What feeds you? What brings you joy? How does your day bring you joy? And phrasing that question this way, brings dignity to the person regardless of what their employment situation is. They see hope in that question, 
hope, that there is joy that continues to be theirs, that never leaves as part of their identity. The gift and grace continues to feed them, whether they're employed or not. Maybe they're not getting paid for that, but there's still joy in the work. And finally, this last part of work, this last goal, this last purpose of work is service. I want you to think of work as service this way. God called us to love each other. Then perhaps it's love that is our work. I know I believe that. I believe that love is our work. I believe that whether you're a teacher or a professional sports athlete or an astronaut or a sanitation worker or a sales clerk or even if you're not working at a paid job, you're unemployed or stayed at home or student, I believe that our work for God is love. Love is our work. Can you see that the service of purpose The service purpose of work is love. Darby Ray states that the service of love itself spawns meaning and joy. And when that happens, we see this reflection of God and Christ in our love for each other. The work of love, it produces people who look out for each other, not competing with each other like Ecclesiastes writes. It produces people who look for the dignity and contribution from every unique individual. The work of love mirrors God's abundant grace and love for us so that we strive to make this world better in whatever way we can. Some work, the wise Koheleth shares with us, is meaningless. It's meaningless to chase titles and pile up accolades and wealth It's meaningless to ignore other people in your lives, but working for the common good, working so that each of us has a way to demonstrate our unique contribution to the world and to each other, working to help each person earn a living wage and to flourish in life, well, that's what I believe is the purpose of anyone's work. We work for each other. We love our neighbor. We seek justice when others are harmed. We share in the economy of God's grace. Mark Miller is an incredibly talented composer who wrote an anthem that you may have heard, God has work for us to do. And I'd like to share in closing the lyrics of that. See if you can hear in this the economy of God's grace. See if you can hear in this the purpose of work. See if you can hear that love is the work that we do for God. Till all the jails are empty and all the bellies filled, till no one hurts or steals or lies and no more blood is spilled, till age and race and gender no longer separate, till pulpit, press, and politics are free of greed and hate by sitting at a bedside to hold a pale, trembling hand, by speaking for the powerless against unjust demands, by praying through our doing and singing through our fear, by trusting that the seed we sow will bring God's harvest near. God has work for us to do. God has work for us to do. Till God's work is done, And all things are made new. God has work for us to do.
work for us to do. May we know that that work has meaning in our lives, about who we are, in others' lives, and in God's economy of love and grace. May it ever be so. Amen.